I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is a stick with a point. This week, my guest shares with us some remarkable insights not only to her own world, but also to the lifestyle and challenges faced by one of the 20th century's legendary artists. The interview itself, from last month, shows the miracle of modern technology that can help us have such contact between the Maryland countryside and an Austrian mountain retreat. But one or two internet gremlins are apparent. Nevertheless, the interview's content is both refreshing, revealing, and at times captivating. I hope you enjoy it. I'm delighted now to be joined by Eleanor Hope, and Eleanor is one of the most respected and revered of managers in Europe, perhaps the world. Uh, Eleanor, wonderful to see you. Thank you for being with us. It's a great honor and great pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Well, it's lovely. Um, now, Eleanor, um, you describe yourself, I hope, as a manager. Is that right? Yes, I'm a manager um, or an agent, you can call me. Um, and have been for the last 40 something years. Mm. And you're enjoying, as you just said, uh, a rather uh, long career and a very distinguished career. You've, uh, you've worked with some of the great luminaries of the classical music world. Um, and I wanted to ask you things like, as a manager, do you feel that um, you have to have very particular qualities to be able to deal with some of the personalities that uh, that come in front of you? Well, I think it's a, it's a profession which requires um, an enormous amount of flexibility uh, because you have to be more than just a, a business person in the life of an artist. Uh, in my case, um, having specialized mostly in general management, you end up doing all sorts of crazy things from being a nursemaid to a psychiatrist, um, to a tax consultant, to being a lawyer. You have to have uh, the, the ability to be flexible in all these fields um, and to, to act as a support and, and sometimes guide for the artist. Um, it's something that I've loved doing and I'm absolutely delighted that I never had to work in a bank and have six weeks holidays a year. Um, I never had to work from nine till five. I work all the time. Um, I can't remember the last time I had a real holiday. I don't, don't think I'm very good at holidays. Um, I love what I do. It's, it's my life. It's my life. Well, that's, that's very intriguing, of course, because um, we all get into this classical music world initially, I think, because we love the music. And that's what, what brings us in there. Um, and then we get swept up in some aspects of the business. And um, I, I never realized that personally being a, a conductor, being a music director was going to be so different from just waving my hands around in front of the pretty music. Um, there are so many other sides to it as well. So how, if you do, how do you separate, how do you divorce? What is your love for music? from the demands of being in the, in the classical music business? 
My love for music I've had since I was a small child. I've always loved music. Um, I grew up in South Africa. We didn't have a very great amount of access to top-class classical music, but when we did, it was wonderful. And I had a grandmother who took me to concerts, uh, particularly chamber music, and I loved that. Um, music is indeed my love, and it has become my passion, but I didn't enter into the music business with that in mind. I was in, the, in a situation where I had to support a family. Um, and the only job that was offered to me, which I thought would be of interest, was working as secretary to Yehudi Menuhin. I was offered another job, which was being secretary to the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't like him at all, because um, I'd once heard him preach in Johannesburg. And um, his political views were, were very dissimilar to my own, so I turned that down. But I went for the interview with Yehudi Menu and crossed my fingers because it seemed like a perfect job. Um, he interviewed me for about five minutes and said, well, on paper, it all looks fine. Um, you know, what about music? And I, I panicked slightly, thinking he would ask me something about um, musicology, perhaps, for which I was ill-prepared. Um, but he said, well, uh, could you tell the difference between Bach and Beethoven? And I said, yes. He said, fine, when can you start? Oh, well. <laughs> um, and I started six weeks later. And in those six weeks, I learned everything that I possibly could about music. And that was in England. And we had the wonderful Radio 3, which I listened to morning, noon, and night. Um, I listened to recordings. I went to every concert that I could possibly afford. Um, I practically lived in, in the Royal Albert Hall um, and just absorbed, absorbed and absorbed and realized then that indeed it was going to become a passion. Um, there, were, there were a few awkward moments. Um, for example, when I first started working for Menuhin, um, he said, oh, well, I'll, I'll be doing such and such concert and um, I'm going to play the, uh, the Beethoven concerto, the Beethoven violin concerto. And I said, um, fine, which, which one? Whoops. Because I thought piano concerto of Beethoven, maybe there is more than one violin concerto. Um, so I, I very quickly learned that there was... <laughs> Only one, the Beethoven violin concerto, um, but uh, so so it was it was a learning curve for me, uh, but I was lucky enough to to do the learning with an incredible human being, um, who opened doors for me into a world that I I didn't know existed. Um, yeah. So that uh, was my stroke of good fortune. Surely um, the most amazing human being you could you could ever come across and, and of course at the beginning of your career um uh that must have been well i'm sure you deserve to get the post but uh, such a stroke of luck as well and um as you say he opened for you lots of doors there but um what were some of the challenges with with dealing with such a, a unique personality as that exactly he, he was a very um 
business-minded personality, although he never gave that impression uh, in public. Mm. In public, he was he was a great humanitarian, a wonderful musician, a great artist. Um, but he was he was an amazing businessman, and I think it was a quality that he had learned from his father, who was his original manager, um, and whom I had met. I met his father. I was taken off to to meet his father and uh, get the seal of approval from Papa, who said to me, I know you will look after my son very well, but I will give you some advice. I do not want you ever to trust an accountant. Always double check accountants and what they produce for you. And above all, please don't trust any Swiss accountants. Um, this was, was a bit of a shock because I knew that uh, the Menuhin family had some Swiss accountants, in fact, in their lives. And so I, I stayed silent on that. Um, in fact, later in life, it was very interesting to, to see the, the great difference between Swiss accountants, British accountants, French accountants. Um, it was a whole new philosophy of how you deal with figures. Mm. And that was uh, in itself fascinating for me. Unfortunately, I don't like uh, having to, to deal with finances particularly, but of course I've had to learn how to do it and to get the best deal I can for an artist. Um, so having that bit of background knowledge helped me immensely. Did you have to um, um, uh, negotiate on his behalf as well, or, or, or was that done by by other people? I'm not asking for you know, sort of specific fees, but um, were there occasions when you had to go into battle for him? Oh yes, many. Uh -huh. um, and the, the the most important um, aspect of doing battle occurred when he was sadly no longer able to play the violin because of physical problems he had. Mm -hmm. Which, which just didn't want to work properly any longer. And some decisions had to be taken. He had a huge family which depended upon him. And I said, well, we're going to have to, to do something else. What do you think we could do? And he didn't know. And I said, what about conducting? Because I, I knew he had done some conducting um, and that he'd even had uh, earlier in his life, some lessons with Antal Dorati. Oh, really? A Hungarian conductor. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, yes, maybe I could I could become a conductor. Um, he had directed from the violin quite a bit. Yes. And so I said, well, that's a start. Maybe if we start with a, with a chamber orchestra, we could get something going. Um, and he became, he was very enthusiastic about that. And... I went to see his record company, which was EMI in those days, doesn't exist any longer, and um, spoke to the, the president of EMI and said, this situation has arisen and what do you think of it? And he said, absolutely out of the question. Oh. Um, absolutely out of the question. It, it simply won't sell. Um, and then I contacted uh, his agents in the United States, which were Columbia artists which has recently closed the shop, mm -hmm. the oldest of all the agents, agencies, um, and said, well, what would you think about 
menu and becoming a conductor, out of the question, forget it. No, absolutely not that we'd never get the fees that he gets. Um, I said, well, in that case, we're going to have to do it by ourselves. And we did. We did the first couple of years really without any kind of support from his other agents. But somehow he, he persevered and people realized he, he might not have been the greatest musical technician as a conductor, but he was a wonderful musician. Yeah, I, I think there's no question that. of that, yes. Yeah. And that came through. I've been watching quite a lot of videos recently of, of him rehearsing, and it's been fascinating, the, the, the musicianship that comes through and the, the ability to interact. And, of course, um, having several languages at his disposal was uh, no hardship at all on the podium. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, that, that stemmed from his childhood. Um, he, he never went to school, and he was raised with uh, private tutors. And he could speak um, English, German, French, Italian, Spanish, Hebrew, and Russian, all with equal fluency. Um, quite extraordinary. Great gift. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, and of course, uh, probably the greatest exponent of my favorite violin concerto by, by Elgar that's ever been. Yes, indeed. Um, so... Um, when you were working with with Menuhin, that that must have brought you into contact with other distinguished and uh, and great musicians as well. Um, uh, was that something that 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 further affected uh, your interest in music and your desire yes, to, to go on in this world? Certainly, um, and uh, well, Dorati, in fact, who who had played a, a decisive role in Menuhin's becoming a conductor. Um, I was uh, in touch with him. I was in touch with Rostropovich, um, one of the most wonderful cellists ever, Benjamin Britten, Peter Pears. These were people who, who came frequently to the Menuhin house and whom one got to know. Um, Ravi Shankar was another one. Uh, dozens of them. Um, I ended up taking over the, the administration of the Menuhin Festival in Stad, And that was the opportunity of, of extending my contacts with many other great artists. Um, I'm thinking of Paul Tortelier, who was a mm. glorious cellist uh, whom I got to know and, and who was simply wonderful. Um, the, the people who came to Gstaad were like a, a kind of extended Menuhin family. It was a very special atmosphere there. Um, it subsequently became much more commercial. Initially, the concerts were held in a, in the local church, um, and then one day they they took over a very large tent which seated two thousand two hundred people, and suddenly we were doing operas and huge symphony concerts. Wow! Um, and. Uh, that, that was a wonderful period in my life for me and for my children. My children and I were there every summer because Menuhin said, <clears throat> I can't separate a mother from her children, so of course you will bring yours with you. And we had a little chalet there and, and my children, in effect, it was their second home mm. in Switzerland. So they had, had great good fortune. 
That sounds quite magical. Is is, uh, yes, is that how it was? Yeah, fantastic. Yes, it's magical, magic summers. I'm very envious. I'm very envious. <laughs> sounds, sounds lovely. Um, let Let's um, move on a little bit to maybe aspects of this business that that aren't so um, cherished in your mind, uh, um, particularly at the moment. Um, as you mentioned, Columbia Artists was the oldest of the, the large companies of, of managers, of agents, and uh, they've recently gone under. Um, do you think that that is the future for, for the other large companies, or do you think that the music business is changing in a way that will um, perhaps serve more people more equitably? I don't know that it, it will serve people equitably. Um, this pandemic has done tremendous damage to music and musicians. Um, today I heard uh, a report on Austrian radio, I live in Austria, um, about footballers and footballers starting the new season here, uh, which begins in the next couple of weeks. Footballers are getting 80% of their salary paid retrospectively um, and musicians were getting absolutely nothing. Is this by the uh, government? This is this is a, a, a sports regulation. Oh, right. Um, the government here, uh, although music is is a vital, crucial part of uh, Austrian um, industry, tourism. Um, the government initially did nothing. Mm. And it took a, a group of Austrian agents, which, which we started, um, some 28 or 30 members, to really fight for the rights of freelance artists. Um, those who were employed by opera houses or orchestras uh, as salaried employees uh, were in a slightly better position. But the freelance artists, people, uh, conductors, musicians, and even people who work backstage, um, hairdressers, costume makers, many of them are freelance and they don't have employment contracts necessarily. Uh, they sell their services, as does a musician, a soloist, um, and they were left in the rain. It took from March until July to actually get some, some action and to get some money organized. We had a change of the Secretary of State for Culture. And thanks to her, uh, freelance musicians were immediately granted a monthly uh, benefit, not a large sum of money, but at least something. Mm -hmm. um, and we are currently working <laughs> to get a fair deal for future contracts because uh, promoters, not just in Austria, but in, in many parts of the world, are insisting on putting a clause into their contracts that in the event of COVID, uh, the concert will be cancelled and there will be no compensation paid. And we just managed, one of my colleagues reports, to get a 30% payment clause in such an event from the government of Lower Austria, um, 
music is organized here on a regional basis and Lower Austria is one of the provinces. And Sounds like you, you, you do a lot of canvassing then for... for well, yes, it's, it's necessary because who's going to speak for the artists? Yeah, so, so do you want to come to this country, to the US, and be a lobbyist? Because there are thousands of musicians who would welcome you with open arms, particularly if you're going to be this successful. You know, there is, of course, a huge difference. In the United States, you don't have um, very much in the way of public funding. Uh, I think that's virtually disappeared now. Yeah, it's and an understatement. Yeah, you rely heavily on on uh, support from private individuals, from companies. Um, it's it's this extraordinary sponsorship basis that uh, supports American music. Um, at least here, there are some government or organizations that do support the production of music, um, ministries and local government. But nonetheless, you have to explain that while a musician may play, it is actually a serious occupation. And without music and without culture, our lives are very much poorer. Um, Well, Vienna would be unthinkable, wouldn't it, without... Vienna would be unthinkable, but it takes a long time for this kind of philosophy to percolate into the minds of politicians, perhaps. um, It's very distressing as well, isn't it, Um, to have to constantly prove yourselves as being contributors to to the economy and that there's a a huge net gain to any economy that has a thriving arts and music scene attached to it and that that musicians aren't the sponges who who just go out there and uh, have a great time fiddling away it's not exactly. like that exactly well congratulations to you on um, on on the on the lobbying you've done in uh, in austria and as i said you you'd be very welcome over here eleanor anytime <laughs> truly truly so what do you what do you see as being the future for the classical music business and i want to differentiate or distinguish between business and classical music. I, I've got great faith in people loving uh, Beethoven, Shostakovich, Britain, Brass, forever. Um, but the business is a different is a different thing. Well, I don't think that uh, classical music, live classical music, will die. Um, we've had to adapt. We've had uh, streamed concerts. Um, they they have been a support, they've been an adjunct, but I think people will always want to experience live music. And while that desire is there, I think um, live music has a future. Hmm. Um, quite certainly it has a future. Uh, what I found very disappointing is how easily people give up. Um, in my view, we have to continue making the music come what may, because if we stop, we'll lose the audiences. And I think we'll all be the poorer for that. Um, We've just heard yesterday that the Bratislava Festival, which is an excellent smallish festival with lots of visiting orchestras, Bratislava, capital of Slovakia, neighboring country to Austria, have canceled their festival, which was to start in two weeks time. Oh. Um, why? Slovakia 
has had very, very low COVID figures. It's practically extinct in Slovakia now. But the politicians panic and they say, we must cancel, we cannot have groups of people. Um, undoing something like this festival is a major undertaking. The, everyone is disappointed. And it, the awful thing is, it's not necessary, as we have seen with the Salzburg Festival. If people collaborate and cooperate with promoters, there's no reason why we cannot have concerts. We may have a smaller audience. We may have to have smaller productions. We may have to have uh, an orchestra which is not as numerous as it would normally be. We may have to dispense with intermission. We may have to dispense with serving drinks in, in the intermission. We may have to organize uh, lines of people coming in, disinfecting their hands, having their masks on and only taking the masks off when they sit down. And we may have smaller audiences, but there is no reason to stop making music. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And the, the, one of the big problems, particularly over here, is that it's very easy to politicize uh, what's happening at the moment. and. Um, not focus on finding um, a common sense approach that benefits everybody. And um, you and I recording this uh, in mid-September, uh, there's an election looming in this country, and the whole COVID uh, pandemic is causing people to politicize just about everything. And such as music is getting caught up in that and is, is being um, an, an unwitting victim to it all. And as you say, there are ways to do things, shorter concerts, shorter rehearsals to protect the musicians as well. Where there's a will, there should be a way. And it's very unfortunate. I'm, I'm sure we'll find a way through it, as you're suggesting. We just have to see it out, don't we? Well, you, you are music director of, of two orchestras, I think. Yes. Uh, how are you coping? Oh, um, are all your concerts cancelled? Yes, absolutely. I haven't conducted since uh, March, and as we say, it's mid-September. I don't know when I'll conduct again. I'm making plans all the time. Um, I'm trying to be um, innovative in my own way. I'm trying to stay in touch with my musicians. And, and also, because I, I'm based in the States, uh, as you alluded to earlier, uh, we're very dependent on benefaction, a cultural benefaction and support from businesses and from wealthy individuals and staying in contact with those wonderful people, letting them know that uh, we're still there. Don't forget about us. We're doing everything we can to, to uh, keep the flame uh, burning and uh, we will be back. Um, the, but different states are affected in different ways, of course, because there are limitations on the gatherings um, that can be held at the moment. So. You might have a venue that can only uh, accommodate 250 people, and that will include performers and the backstage crew and ushers and everybody else. So it suddenly diminishes your income stream there. And um, a lot of boards, a lot of management are very reluctant to to really go that route and um, and get into a, an even more difficult situation. The music business is struggling in this country like everywhere else, and this damn pandemic was the last thing anybody needed um, but but staying in touch with everybody and um, I have to say um, this isn't about your son at all but um, watching what Daniel has been doing 
um, on on his um, his broadcast from his home in Berlin. That that was staggering, and that grew into something that that's gone around the world. And I've been sharing that with with uh, with people. And um, he did something really quite wonderful there, and it, it kept people connected, kept people interested and engaged. And um, the more of that during these troubled times we can get, uh, I think that the the better we'll all feel. So there's a little plug for Daniel Hope. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm very proud of what he did. Um, it was it was a, a stroke of genius. Um, oh yes, because it, although it looks very simple, um, you know, have have some cameras in your house and make some music. The actual technical setup uh, was unbelievable. Um, he got he said if we're going to do it, then it has to have the very best sound. So his sound engineer from, from uh, the recording studio in Berlin had to come and, and sort out microphones. Um, everything was meticulously planned. There were so many people backstage in, in the house that I'm surprised my daughter-in-law didn't well, throw them all out. Maybe I should be interviewing them as well because that's what this is all about. It's the people backstage who make things happen without whom... Yeah, we couldn't we couldn't uh, exist. So, um, uh, hope at home. That's right. I got the right way around, have I? I've just had. Maybe you can see it on the screen. Just arrived. Oh, you're it's showing me. A CD of see. hope at home. <laughs> I'll be looking out for that. And uh, everybody else who's listening to this should be. It's in its in its cellophane package, um, but it certainly caught on, and. Apparently, seven million streams. Wow. Seven million people stopped at six o'clock in the evening, what they were doing, and listened to music for an hour on their television screen or on their computer screen. And I think it tells you just how important music is in people's lives. Um, very interesting to see the comments that came in from the audiences um, who felt that there was a, a kind of lifeline for many of them. Mm. I'm lucky enough to live in a house and to have a garden. Many people have to live in a small apartment. Maybe they have two or three children. They've had to do homeschooling. They've had to work from home. This is, this is a tough life. Um, if you're if you're handicapped in this way, uh, and if the music can make a difference, well, we should be doing more of it, shouldn't we? And I think the diversity of the presentation as well was quite wonderful. Um, I'm somebody who gets bored very easily with music online, and um, I have to say that the uh, the short, charming sort of vignettes that were played there, and the interaction with other artists, other performers, with with actors reading. Um, uh, with with distinguished artists doing things you didn't normally associate them with, like Simon Rattle playing the piano. I've heard Simon play the piano before, but I don't know that many people do these days. And that was that was uh, lovely to see. Uh, all, all of these things, it, there was diversity, and it was fascinating. It drew you in. So that was a, a huge success. And I'll look out for that CD, Elena. I'll be I'll be buying it once we finish this interview. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wonder as well, um, um, I've, I've taken a lot of your time today. You've been very generous. I'm, I'm very grateful to you. Uh, but you must, in these years that you've been working in this 
unbelievable industry, you must have had some truly bizarre situations. And I don't want to jeopardize your freedom by telling me anything that's uh, remotely libelous or will get you into trouble with the law. But do you have any funny stories you feel like sharing with us? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, it's, it's, it's just a funny life. Um, one of my favorite hilarious moments was um, when Yehudi Menuhin played a new composition in the church in Kstad. And this involved um, his having to walk down the aisle with a, a double bass bow and he had to stroke a bell that was suspended over the, the aisle. It was, it was a special sound effect in this new work. I won't reveal the name of the composer. Um, and there hadn't been terribly much time to rehearse it. And I'd said to the, the sexton man in charge of the church to please make sure that the, the bell was properly suspended and uh, Lord Menuhin would be coming down the aisle at a certain point. He would walk off the stage and come down the aisle. <laughs> it began, uh, the work began with a, a bucket full of water, which was on the stage, which had to be uh, banged with um, some kind of metal hammer. <laughs> so someone had to go bang, 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 and the water would swish around. And Lord Menuhin promptly put his foot into the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> Extricated himself, managed to come down the stairs, clutching this double bass bow and heading for the bell. But he was he was not a tall man, he was five foot seven. And the bell was just out of reach. And he stood in the aisle trying desperately to, to <laughs> ring the bell. Um, I don't think I've ever laughed so much in my life, but of course mm. I couldn't. First of all, we were in the church. Secondly, it was a premiere of a work, very important. And so I ended up stuffing a handkerchief into my mouth because I was, I was screaming with laughter. <laughs> Uh, and the tears were running down my cheeks from from the effort of trying not to laugh, and that was that was simply wonderful. Um, uh, Eleanor, I imagine that's a, that's a piece you didn't take on the road after that. Is am I right <laughs> in thinking that? <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Eleanor, uh, you know, um, you and I have communicated, uh, corresponded quite a lot um, over the years, and I want to tell you that uh, whenever I hear from you. I always feel better. And I, I, that's exactly how I'm feeling now. So, Eleanor Hope, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. And I want to thank you very much for taking part in this. Andrew, I thank you for inviting me. And I hope the people who are watching this will realize that in Andrew Constantine, they have somebody who fights for music and who will definitely succeed in that fight. You're very kind. I thoroughly enjoyed that candid chat with the ever-optimistic Eleanor Hope. Next time, I'll be interviewing one of the most potent and legendary voices from the classical music industry. Over his career, 
which began in the 1960s, Henry Fogel has been president and CEO of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Before that, he ran the National Symphony in Washington, D.C., and later the League of American Orchestras. Basically, he's done a lot of things, worked with countless giants of this industry, and he had a great deal to say. As an idle conductor, it's great fun making these podcasts, and I'm meeting and chatting with some truly lovely people. That said, it would be great to hear some of your suggestions for people I can reach out to for interview. You can always be in touch with me on Facebook, either on my own page or the page for the podcast. Meanwhile, stay strong and healthy and enjoy listening to your favourite music. I'm Andrew Constantine and you have been listening to A Stick with a point.